0: So there's an officer from the Dutch Naval uh, Marine saying, well, that he has hundreds of, uh, of, of lovers on all these boats. And both Dutch and Indian lovers. Uh, well, Bette van Beeren was uh, motor riding, cigar smoking, leather jacket on, and so on and so forth. So, so it was a typical dike of the pre-60s. It looks very good in Holland. And I guess it's a positive thing. But at the same time, this openness has completely destroyed the gay lesbian movement.
1: to This Way Out, the international LGBTQ radio magazine. I'm Lucia Chappell. Australia's Morrison's Hate beat by Love's Labor's One, Ellen's talk show Dances into story, and We Remember the Father of Dutch Gay History. All that and more this week now that you've chosen This Way
2: Out.
3: I'm Michael Taylor-Gray.
2: And I'm Marcos Najera.
3: With NewsRap a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world, for the week ending May 28, 2022. I want to bring Australians together. I want to seek our common purpose and promote unity and optimism, not fear and division. Yeah. Equality Australia is calling the election of Labour Party Prime Minister Anthony Albanese a stunning rebuke of the politics of division. Voters across the country dethroned Liberal Party Prime Minister Scott Morrison and his conservative anti-queer coalition government on May 21st. Evangelical Christian Morrison went down swinging, still pushing his failed religious discrimination bill, which critics called a license to discriminate, against LGBTIQ people. He threw in strong support for rapidly anti-trans Liberal Party candidate Catherine Deves and a national ban on trans girls and women in school sports. Deves came nowhere near on an independent MP. Three of four queer liberal party MPs also went down with Morrison's ship. Albanese signaled a sea change from the beginning, saying during his victory speech, I want Australia to continue to be a country that no matter where you live, who you worship, who you love, or what your last name is, that places no restrictions on your journey in life. In one of his first actions, Albanese named Lesbian Labor Party Senator Penny Wong to be the new foreign minister, making her one of the most powerful out-government officials on the planet. Soon after her May 22nd swearing-in ceremony, Wong and Albanese flew to Tokyo for a meeting with leaders from India, Japan, and the U.S. It's uncertain as of this report whether labor has won enough seats in Parliament to govern, or whether Albanese will need one or more of the minority parties to form a coalition government. At his Sydney celebration, the nation's 31st Prime Minister underscored his commitment to leading a government that will be open to all. I can promise all Australians this, no matter how you voted today, the government I lead will respect every one of you every day.
2: The Church of Scotland approved in-church marriage ceremonies for lesbian and gay couples on May 23rd at its 2022 General Assembly. The 274 to 136 vote made it the largest religious denomination in the United Kingdom to do so. Church law now allows ministers and deacons to conduct same-gender weddings, but clerics who oppose marriage equality in the church can opt out. Scotland opened civil marriage to same-gender couples in December 2014, but it's taken another eight years for them to enjoy the church's blessing. Clergy are already applying to be celebrants at queer weddings, according to the preservation charity Church's Trust. The first lesbian and gay couples are expected to walk down the sanctified aisle later this year. Queer activists inside and outside the Church of Scotland praised its theological progress. It stands in stark contrast to the Church of England, Anglican leaders have yet to catch up with their English congregants, who mostly support church marriages for gay and lesbian couples. Gay and lesbian Church of England clergy are allowed to be in relationships, but they cannot marry in the church, and they must allegedly remain celibate.
3: Austria is the latest country to lift a ban on blood donations by gay and bisexual men. Green Party Health Prime Minister Johannes Rausch made the announcement on May 20th. The new rules are based on the same principle that other countries have used when lifting their bans. Potential donors will be screened based on their sexual behaviors, not their sexual orientation or gender identity. Having sex with three or more different partners in the previous three months would make a donor ineligible regardless. However, Rausch said that the government is putting an end to discrimination from another age. This ends the current total ban on trans and non-binary blood donors and on gay and bisexual men who have had sex with another man in the past 12 months. Rausch said that the changes would be evaluated two years after they take effect. The reforms have the consent of the politically conservative Austrian People's Party, which is in coalition with the Greens. It's not clear when the new regulations will go into effect. Some reports suggest that it will happen within the next few weeks, while others say it will take a few months.
2: A simple majority in both chambers of Indiana's Republican-dominated state legislature easily overrode the governor's veto of a trans student sports ban on May 24. Republican Governor Eric Holcomb had called the measure to stop transgender girls from competing in girls' sports from kindergarten through the 12th grade unnecessary and said it would open Indiana to lawsuits. Holcomb was right. The ACLU of Indiana has already sued the state on behalf of a 10-year-old trans softball player who would have to quit her school's girls team. The ACLU has asked a federal court to issue an injunction to block the law, which is scheduled to take effect on July 1st.
3: Here comes another state bathroom bill. This one signed on May 25th by Oklahoma Republican Governor Kevin Stitt. Public and charter school students from kindergarten through the 12th grade must now use sex-segregated bathrooms, locker rooms, and such based on the gender listed on their birth certificates, not their gender identity. Individual schools or school districts could lose 5% of their state funding if they violate the law. It also allows parents to file lawsuits against violators. Oklahoma's bathroom occupancy was considered such an emergency that the legislation includes a provision for it to take effect immediately. On the same day, Stitt also signed one of the country's most horrific anti-choice laws. It outlaws abortions after the moment of fertilization, with few exceptions.
2: Montana's Department of Public Health and Human Services is defying a federal court order that allowed trans people to change the gender marker on their birth certificates. In April, a Billings District Court judge blocked a bill that required trans people to undergo a surgical procedure and get a court order before changing the document. The department's emergency order issued on May 23rd is seen as the state government's effort to skirt the injunction. It requires birth certificates to show the sex as only male or female and rejects the term gender. The order falsely calls sex immutable and gender a social concept. When the bill was enacted late last year, two trans Montanans sued the state. They charged that the law violated their constitutional rights and noted that not all trans people choose to undergo gender-affirming surgery. The State Health Department has the legal authority to issue an emergency order when there is an existing imminent peril to the public health, safety, or welfare that cannot be averted or remedied by any other administrative act. Minority Democrats, rights groups, and healthcare specialists all condemn the Republican workaround. An ACLU statement said, We intend to take this up in court.
3: In other trans news, Children's Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, will continue accepting new patients at their specialized clinic. Medical center officials had bowed to political pressure late last year and barred the Genesis clinic from accepting new pediatric transgender clients. The head doctor is suing. A judge has extended her two-week order allowing Genesis to keep receiving new patients until a full trial is held. That's set for late April of next year.
2: Finally, publicly perceived as being nice, privately charged with being mean, one thing cannot be denied. For more than 20 years, she's been on the cultural front lines of the movement for LGBTQ rights and freedoms. She's had a dramatic and comedic impact on queer advancement from the groundbreaking coming out episode of her 1990s sitcom to her 21st century rebirth as a weekday talk show host, drawing consistently large ratings and winning several awards. Saying that the next chapter of her life is yet to be determined, Ellen DeGeneres tenderly drew the curtain on The Ellen DeGeneres Show this week.
1: 20 years ago, when we were trying to sell the show, no one thought that this would work. Uh, Not because it was a different kind of show, but because I was different. Very few stations wanted to buy the show. And here we are 20 years later, celebrating this amazing journey together. And this show has forever changed my life. It is the greatest experience I've ever had beyond my wildest imagination.
3: So Twitch, one last time, dance with me. That's News Wrap, global queer news with attitude for the week ending May 28th, 2022. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community.
2: News is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappell, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you by you.
3: Thank you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more.
2: And you can read the transcript and listen to News each week by subscribing to our This Way Out radio channel on YouTube. For This Way Out, I'm Marcos Najera. Stay healthy.
3: And I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Stay safe. I'm Ellen DeGeneres, and you're listening to This Way Out.
1: That was without cue cards, people.
0: My name is Gert Hekma. I'm uh, connected to the University of Amsterdam, where I'm teaching gay and lesbian studies. And my new book, it's called Homosexuality in the Netherlands, but in Dutch. Yeah, And it covers the period from the 18th to the 20th century.
1: Yeah. Gay researcher, author and historian Gert Hekma passed into history himself on April 19th, Professor Heckma taught sociology, gender studies, and sexuality at the University of Amsterdam from 1984 to 2017. He was reportedly the first scholar to teach about the gay as a full university course with a specialty in the history of homosexuality. His controversial opinions on pedophilia and sadomasochism led to conflicts within the university and death threats from the outside. In 2004, Heckma published Homosexuality in the Netherlands from 1730 to Modern Times. It's an exhaustive cultural account of the long road Dutch gay men have traveled, and it's only available in Dutch. This Way Out Sydney correspondent Barry McKay was in Amsterdam at the time and was able to sit down with Heckma for an extended conversation in English.
2: In the late 19th century, what... Would the the life of a gay man have been like?
0: I would say it's difficult, but on the other hand, because it's a, it's it's a nameless crime, it's an unnameable crime. So we have several uh, uh, autobiographies of homosexual men from that age, because at that time there's an there's an opening up of of sexual issues. There's a discussion about prostitution, and with the discussion of prostitution, they continue with all kinds of other issues like homosexuality also. And so there are some homosexual men who start to defend their inclination... ...and they say, well, this is an inborn inclination... ...and this kind of stuff they're going to say. And they tell their stories also. And some of the stories are quite sad... ...because they say we live in a life of... of ...where our sexual life is tabooed, it's hidden, it's uh, unspeakable... ...you can't discuss it. But under this level of unspeakability... ...there is also, I would say, quite a vivid gay life also... So there's, for example, an officer from the Dutch Naval uh, Marine, and he's saying, well, that he has hundreds of, uh, of, of lovers on all these boats, both Dutch and Indian lovers, so it's uh, also of racial mixture story. So I guess it's, uh, well, it's a complicated story. So it's, it's taboo, but at the same time, under t- the taboo, there's uh, quite a lot of uh, things happening. So I'm always saying there is less men who in, get engaged in homosexual sex but they do it more fervently. Yeah. And this is not the case in the early 20th century. In 1900, you saw a change in the Dutch politics, because at that time, the Christian Orthodox people get more prominence and get more power. So you could say largely. Had the, eight, the 19th century was a liberal age, which did not mean that they tolerated homosexuality, but, well, they didn't forbid it. But in the 20th century, it's the Christian Democrats or so the Christian Orthodox people, the Catholics and the Calvinists together have power during most of the 20th century. And they introduced, had to differentiate themselves from the liberals. They have new sex laws against abortion, pornography, prostitution, yeah. this kind of stuff and homosexuality but in after the law in 1911 you got in 1912 the first homosexual rights movement in the netherlands it was a chapter of hirschfeld's scientific humanitarian committee in berlin and then this guy schorer he founded a movement with the with nominal support of some other people uh, and he had this movement and had the an invasion of the Germans in 1940. So for 28 years, or what is it? Yeah, 28 years. And it was a kind of gay homosexual movement. And the Netherlands was the second country in the world to have such a movement. Yeah. He had a very big library, so he loaned his books out to gay men and other people also. He had a kind of annual little uh, newsletter, you might say. He was bringing gay men together. He advised them on when there was a kind of uh, criminal persecution. This kind of work he did.
2: Do we have any descriptions of gay bars pre-Second World War? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So the police is going there. So there's also one, uh, there's several novels. And so one of the novels includes kind of description of a gay place. Yeah. And there's also, an, uh, there's more, uh, there's also police reports and we interviewed people. So we have uh, all kinds of uh, descriptions of gay places. Although had this gay man were defined as effeminate had they had all reason to be not effeminate because if, as soon as they looked effeminate had the police could uh, well say well this is a gay bar and so they had all kinds of ways to try to get to to not to be interrupted by the police. So what they did was, for example, to have the doorman, and the doorman was on the lookout. And so when a, a police officer or a, a presumed police officer was coming up, he was ringing a bell or he was doing something else to prevent the people to be very respectable. Yeah, and to and for example, if there was music on, to stop the music, and whether people dancing, to stop the dancing. Yeah. But the police was very active in looking at the gay place. So I, I, there's a report, for example, on the police to go to, the, to a bar in the Ness and they go to the place and they go into the kitchen to look if there's also uh, female dresses because they have the idea that these people also are also doing drag shows and so on and so forth, and they don't find anything. Yeah. So I guess in general it was quite simple bars, yeah. Now, well, I would say there were really gay bars. I would say there were gay bars that were completely gay or lesbian. There were some places where they had a little corner in a bar, indeed. But that's, well, uh, yeah, that's, that, that continues until, I would say, the 1960s. And there are bars, and that's uh, specifically for the red light district. So in the, in the, you have always... Prostitutes were lesbians. And some of these lesbians they invested their money in a in a bar. And these bars they were located in the red light districts. And this is the history of the Monaco and the Bed van Beeren, for example. And so these uh, lesbian women who have been prostitutes, they start a bar and it's open for all kinds of people. So it's open for dykes who look for farms, it's open for the gay boys who like who look for the trade, yeah, for the for the for the sailors and so on and so forth. And it's open for the Johns and the prostitutes. So it's mixed bars, which have a certain openness for uh, homosexuals and lesbians. Uh, Well, Bette van Beeren, she was uh, a very strong dyke, motor riding, cigar smoking, leather, jacket on, and so on and so forth. So so she was a typical dyke of the pre-60s. And uh, she had a bar called Het Mandje, the Basket, in the Zee Dijk. The Zee Dijk Z- Z- was the major, and lower class, uh, uh, how do you say, amusement strip in Amsterdam, and it had a lot of prostitutes. And she had her bar there, and it existed since 1927. And she stopped. Uh, she died in 1967, and her sister continued till uh, 1983. And the bar is still uh, existing. There's even a copy in the Amsterdam Historical Museum of this bar with some explanation by her sister of the what happened in the bar. Well, so she was very strict. So she didn't like to have... Uh Uh, problems with the police, so she forbades gay men and lesbian women to kiss each other, for example, or to be too close to each other. So I guess what happened lastly, it was a kind of socializing place. So you have to, I would say, so this gay and lesbian bars, it was not sex places, it was people, it was places to, uh, for socializing, to meet people. So there's more space for gay men and also for lesbian women, apparently, uh, but more for gay men, for sure. And, well, there's more men who have the possibility to bring people home. But you have to realise also, uh, it's a strong taboo still. So if a gay man has a room with a with a landlady, well, she will not have him uh, take people home, uh, other men. I guess if he has his own house, uh, the neighbours will see it. So he has to take very much caution that he doesn't, uh, well, uh, transgress the uh, the norms of respectability.
1: You're listening to Barry McKay's conversation about Dutch gay history with the late gender and sexuality professor Kert Heckma on This Way Out, the international LGBTQ radio magazine.
0: After the Nazi occupation of Holland, it would seem that things began to change quite dramatically. Well, I would say uh, after the war, it, you have uh, dramatic change in two directions. In the first place, I would say, we have, have this law of 1911, and it's used more and more after the war. And you have also, before the war, they started to castrate uh, sex criminals, and they also start to, I would say, cr- to castrate homosexual men, so young men, on the advice of the family, the priest and the home physician. Yeah. On the other hand, you have also the game movement start. So the C.O.C. it's it's, uh, it's founded in 1948. It has early already a little journal, the Shakespeare Club journal, and so uh, and 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 it's quite successful and it's also also allowed to exist by the authorities and to have public meetings. So the C.O.C. C.O.C. What does it stand for? And who were they exactly? What what did the people do together? Uh, well the idea of the COC, it's culture and recreation. So COC, it's culture and ontspanning centrum, so it's Center for Culture and Recreation. So what the man, so Bob Angelo or Nick Engelsman, as was his real name, and the other people, what they sought in the first place was to to work on politics. Yeah, they were political activists. But at the same time they realized they could not work on political activism if they had no support yeah and they created support i would say by creating a journal by also creating bars yeah and so the first they had kind of weekly meetings they had also lectures and later on, they had the first big dancings yeah, in Amsterdam in the 1950s. So that I, I, would, I would say, when you look at the 1950s, there's taken place a major change. So there's still this heavy prosecution, but at the same time, there is more gay bars. There's the first gay leather bar in 1951, I guess. The dancings come up after 51 also. And there's tourism coming to Amsterdam. So I would say there's a lot of American soldiers, for example, in Germany, who come for a weekend to Amsterdam, not only to enjoy the Red Light District, but also the gay venues yeah so, and there's also english people german people french people belgian people so it's uh there is a crowd of people uh, enjoying themselves in amsterdam so that's a change and what is very important in the dutch case what is also going to change it's the psychiatrist yeah and the priest and the clergyman and so in the early 50s you have declarations that homosexuality is feels it's like this kind of statements that uh, gay men are uh, recruiting young boys for uh, homosexuality activi- homosexual activities and in the late 50s and the early 60s the same people exactly the same people who said these horrible things about homosexual men they have changed their opinion and they have perhaps, well, I've, they've wow. done under the influence of the, of the COC. They've done so under the influence of, uh, I would say, had their clientele. But the most important thing, I guess, it's that they have taken seriously, I would say, social work. Yeah? They start with social work instead of castrating. Yeah? And these people like Trimbos and uh, Tolsma had these other psychiatrists from the Calvinist the Catholic background, they changed subsequently the IDs in their pillars. So we have pillars in Holland, so we have this, uh, groups that based on religion. And so in the orthodox pillars in the Netherlands, there's a change of mind taking place that some people are saying, well, had this homosexual men, we thought probably that they were seducing boys, but we have done research and we discovered that they don't seduce boys, but they mostly have sex with other men. And this is innate, so they start to change their minds. And uh, for example Trimble, who was Talking about homosexual behavior as being filth, and he's saying, "Well, it's looking more like f- well-fixed friendships." So he compares instead of his prostitution, homosexual behavior with marriage. you could say. So, and, and this is very important in the Dutch situation, because they change the mind in the most conservative groups, and so bringing the conservative groups to a more positive attitude on homosexuality.
2: Is Holland the light or the hope or the beacon
0: of the world for the homosexual community internationally? Well, so I guess at on one hand, so because it has all these legal regulations now, so it's uh, this legal equality, so it, it, it looks very good in Holland, and it's I guess it's quite open, so that's a positive thing. But at the same time, this openness has completely Destroy the gay and lesbian movement. And so you need a certain level of sexophobia and also clear cut. So in Holland, it's not clear cut, it's so hidden that there's no sexual reform movement, there's no gay and lesbian movement anymore. And so there's no, uh, how do you say, so? anger. I guess it will come back at some point probably. But in the United States or in other places where there's a clear cut homophobia or a clear cut uh, anti sexual attitude, and there's some reason to have a fight yeah, to, to create a gay and lesbian movement. So there's much more of a gay and lesbian movement in many other places than in the Netherlands. Do we need a gay and lesbian movement or is it okay just to assimilate? There's a long way to go still, hey, because this social discrimination hey, of homosexuality and this, this taboo on sexuality, they still with us, yeah? So if you want to have, uh, well, uh, a kind of sexual utopia, you have to do still something, and nobody is doing anything in Holland. So it's in Holland we see stagnation, yeah? So in that sense, there's, so the Netherlands is certainly not an example. So it's, it's a double bind, Yeah well so in this book so let me let me let me give a little overview of the the conclusion so i'm saying have we no need to go to sexual citizenship yeah have we have always discussed uh, ethnic citizenship or religious citizenship at the belonging to the state uh, on the basis of all your uh, well your identities you might have, and there's never been much attention for sexual citizenship, and that's very interesting because it makes sexuality a political issue. Yeah, and the Netherlands sexuality is not so much of a political issue. Yeah, so I guess it's interesting to introduce this this concept of sexual citizenship anywhere, but certainly in Holland also. And then I give some examples of kind of discussions you might have about sexual citizenship. And I'm discussing this culture-nature divide, so I say, well it's, well, it's not very practical to think about sexual drives and sexual genes and this kind of, sort of gay genes, but it's more interesting to think about cultivation of sexuality, of gay sexuality also. There's this discussion about men and women. So are men and women equal? No, are they not equal? They should be made more equal, in my opinion, when it comes to sexuality. I guess in the Netherlands, like in many other places, they think about women who are promiscuous, that they are sluts, while men are, well, are good boys when they are promiscuous. So I guess that's a discrepancy, which is, well, it's, I would say it's uh, it's scandalous that it still continues to exist. And there's this idea that love and sex should be combined. So I always teach my students it's much better to separate the two because it's quite different things, yeah? Sex is about pleasure of the moment, it's about situations. And so love is about, well, about the long term. It's about stability. It's, it's completely opposite emotion from sex, yeah? And there's this private-public dichotomy. So I say, well, we should have a public sexual culture. Yeah? Sex should be made much more public, yeah, political, but also there should be spaces yeah, for sexual pleasure. Yeah? So there's a long series of well of things that you can uh, discuss uh, as a future utopia yeah, of sexual pleasure.
1: Professor Gert-Hekma is survived by his husband of more than 40 years, sociologist Matthias Divas. He was interviewed in 2004 by Barry McKay. Thanks for Finding This Way Out, brought to you by the nonprofit Overnight Productions. Some program material this week came from Michael Taylor Gray and Marcos Nahara, produced by Brian DeShazer, and from Barry McKay. Thanks also to Case VanderVleet. Some of the music you heard came from fantasy and world music by the Fictors. Kim Wilson composed and performed our theme music. This Way Out thanks the Kicking Assets Fund of the Tides Foundation, the Yirvana Foundation, a request from Christopher David Trentum, and donors Paul Bannon and Richard Merck and Brad Payton of Silicon Valley. Listener donors make this program possible. Thank you. Look for This Way Out Radio on social media, email info at thiswayout.org, or write to us at P.O. Box 1065, Los Angeles, California, 90078, USA. For coordinating producer Greg Gordon and the entire This Way Out crew, I'm Lucia Chappelle. Thanks for listening online at thiswayout.org and on WVEW, Brattleboro, Vermont, KEOS College Station, Texas, CJAM, Windsor, Ontario, and a wide array of community terrestrial and internet radio stations around the world, including this one. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay tuned, y'all.